Y'all, let me tell you, I'm really excited to switch things up a little bit this week at Pod Save the People by bringing you two episodes of another project we've been working on. It's called The Untold Story Policing. It's a short series from Campaign Zero produced by Lemonada Media and narrated by Emmy-nominated Jay Ellis from Insecure. Jay sets out on a quest to learn more about the importance of police union contracts in combating police violence and strengthening justice and bringing about the transformative demands that people have. Here are the first two episodes, and you can hear the rest by subscribing. You can find and subscribe to The Untold Story Policing wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains difficult content that may be triggering to some listeners. Please be advised. Oh, man, I had to be seven years old, eight years old, probably. A cop was on the road. And I remember me uh, rolling down my window, looking out and waving at the cop as, as we drove by. And the cop actually waved back. And then I remember within 45 seconds, his lights were on and he was behind us. And he was writing my dad a ticket because he didn't think that I had my seatbelt on, even though I had my seatbelt on. And the cop still gave him a ticket. And that's like one of my very first memories because it was this moment for me where like the guy who I was waving at, who I thought was cool and a protector and a hero, all of a sudden was punishing us for me feeling that way about him, for me waving at him. It was just such a weird, a weird moment for me. Could we take a close look at uh, your badge here, Officer Clemens? My friends, I think, can read it. P-O-L-I-C-E. This is The Untold Story, Policing. I'm Jay Ellis. Over these next four episodes, we're going to dig into public safety and policing in America. I mean, we all have memories of police, right? From the friendly Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers to the more personal, the officer in your real neighborhood. The Untold Story is a podcast about holding police accountable and creating change. So on this podcast, we'll take a closer look at some of the more technical stuff. You know, that whole systemic problem that we keep hearing so much about. We'll examine which systems are in place to actually protect the public, which are working, which are not. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk with experts who actually study this stuff. The union contracts seem to be interfering with our ability to hold officers accountable. There's some real pros out there, and they're collecting organizing and analyzing the data. And they're not just accepting the numbers they see on first glance. Many of the narratives and explanations that had been most prominent and had been used for decades to try and explain why police violence was happening were simply not supported by the actual data. A lot of this is heavy, and we are not going to shy away from that. But we are also going to talk about where change is possible and already working. No one imagined that this group of young black folks would come in and take a seat like the way that we did. And ultimately, the city council said, we agree with this group. It was, I think, our first big success. I grew up in a military family. Uh, For me, seeing men and women in uniform was pretty common. But my feelings about service kind of shifted when my family moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. In fact, a quick story about that, because it was pretty formative for me. I was in eighth grade and my best friend in the world, Joe, and I were riding the bus to school together. 
And he was like, yo, you should come spend the night at my house this weekend. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I go to spend the night at Joe's house. Joe is like, yo, my mom goes to bed really early because she has to be up at like four in the morning to go to work. And I was like, okay. And he was like, I think we should sneak out when she goes to bed and we should go toilet paper Megan's house. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's whatever. Like, I'm down. Like, I was bad little bad boy. We sneaking out. It was my first time sneaking out. Like, I felt, you know. We toilet paper this girl's house. We start walking back to Joe's house. And as we cross the street, cop lights come on. Whoop, 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 whoop. Oh, shit, I'm about to be in trouble. And we don't run because uh, we know that's not going to end well. So we stop. The cops get out and they start questioning us. What are you doing? Uh, we're heading home. Why are you out? We went to a friend's house and we just realized what time it was. We have to be home. The city had a curfew of 10 o'clock for people under 18. And mind you, it's like 10, 12, 10, 10, somewhere in there. So the cop says, well, you know, it's past curfew. Yeah, we know. OK, well, why do you have the toilet paper? Oh, we stumbling. We lying. We dumb. Uh, but we stumble around it. And then finally, we just say we toilet paper one of our teammates houses. And now we're just heading back home thinking that he would, you know, it's a prank. God, believe this. Oh, my God. Please, God, believe this. Cuffs us, puts us in the back of the car, calls our parents. I end up having to go to court. And I remember the judge sitting up, you know, up above us. And my dad, because I was a minor, my dad had to stand there with me. And the, the, the way he talked to my dad, you would think that I was out robbing people at gunpoint. He just was so um, condescending and, and questioning what kind of parent my dad was. I don't know. I just I felt this frustration and I felt this um, anger is the word I keep coming back to because my dad someone who had committed his life to the U.S. Air Force, he demonstrated for me the responsibility to serve and protect. But my dad would also say, and I'll never forget this, he would say, remember, when I'm walking down the street, people won't always see me in uniform, but they will always see that I'm a black man. You're black first. And on that day with the judge, I definitely felt that. And there have been no shortage of reminders all over the news lately. On the fatal shooting of that young unarmed black man, Ahmad Arbery. An unarmed black man. Rachel Brooks was shot American woman at the hands of police. It appears to show three officers mocking McLean's death. Three officers fired a fourth design. Protest leaders say they plan to surround. <laughs> Babies make everybody smile, right? I made the producers put that in because it was getting serious. And it is serious, but I'm a dad as of um, about eight months ago. And it's partly why I'm thinking about my dad and now my daughter. And I'm feeling, you know, all those dad things, right? Like every minute feels so precious to me now. Honestly, from the moment she came out, I immediately knew that there is nothing that I wouldn't do to protect her. And really, I, I want this to be a world where her memories of police are very, very different than mine. I just I want stuff to be better for her. So let's get into it. If I am going to make the world better for my daughter, for everyone's kids, I have to understand it better. Right. I am lucky to have a friend 
who is totally steeped in all this stuff. Uh, let me check my headphones. I'm struggling. It is... Ray McKesson and I met a few years back. And he works all over the country trying to make change happen. And he, he's got a real talent for complex and tangled up topics like justice and public safety and somehow finds a way to make them clear. So... I got him on a Zoom chat, you know, pandemic 2020 style. That's how we do. And uh, I talked through some of this stuff with him because I'm just going to be real with y'all. I don't know everything. There's a lot that I didn't know until recently and a ton I still don't understand. I have questions. (laughs) I got lots of questions. But it turns out DeRay had even more for me. Let, let's start with um, what do you know about police unions and like what are the questions you still have about them? I know nothing about police unions. Here's what I know about unions. I'm in a couple different unions. SAG is one of the unions that I am in. SAG is great, bro. It's not an actor. <laughs> there are very few actors in L.A. who would tell you that they don't like SAG. SAG, like my union in this town, has been here to protect me on sets to make sure that my 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 pay, my rights, uh, my voice as an actor, uh, my contracts as an actor, to make sure all the things are kind of thought about and available to me to go out and thrive and succeed and do my job. But police unions, I know nothing about. I never even knew there were police unions. It it didn't like even come like cross my mind until. I mean, pr- probably within a year of Ferguson, I would say. What the police unions do is some of what traditional labor does, right? Negotiates for uh, benefits and for wages and for health insurance and, and basic worker protections. But what they do that is unlike anything else in organized labor is that they create a set of protections around discipline and accountability that almost guarantees that officers can't be held accountable. Most of the things that we care about can be blocked by unions. The unions can inhibit progress when we think about budget cuts. They can uh, inhibit progress when we think about firing bad officers. If we want to reimagine public safety to transition away from police officers, uh, the unions will become a huge block. And there's actually never been a coordinated campaign to challenge the power of unions. And most people in cities don't even know that like the city council has to vote on the contract in the end or they don't. Like This is a process that people have no visibility into and the mm-hmm. police benefit immensely from the lack of visibility. If you had to compare uh, the power of police unions to something like if you had to if there was a metaphor is it would it be like lobbyist would it be like the mafia would it be like what would you compare it to the police will tell you that they are just like firefighters and teachers and if you have any criticism of the police union then you are also attacking teachers unions and firefighters that's like their talking point every time uh, what we say is that the police are like the nra the police are like a, they are a lobbying force. At the negotiating table, when you are trying to negotiate a contract, almost all of the tension is around money. Like that's what, you know, like, the, right. the, you know, you're an actor, right? Like right. you're looking for more pay. The people are like, we ain't got the money. Like that's sort of how it works. What the police did over a stretch of years is that they went into the negotiating table and said, we get it. City, you're broke. So we're going to ask for things that have no financial impact, So we're going to say, okay, you can't give us higher wages, but can you destroy our disciplinary records after one year? You can't increase our health insurance because like you said, you have no money, but can you make it so I can get 30 days before I ever have to make a statement if I kill somebody, right? In cities, they were like, sure, like this is perfect because it doesn't cost anything. And we are now dealing with the repercussions of those decisions. Wow. 
wow, I, I um, that makes no sense, but I understand it at the exact same time. So can you can you talk about why we need to start with police unions? Like, why is it? Why is this the place that we go to first and not focus on city councils or prosecutors or federal legislators or, or, or anybody else who's in that system? Why is this the focus? So, no, like I said earlier, I can't I can't say it enough that the police unions really are at the nexus of all of the things that we care about, whether it is removing bad officers tomorrow or decreasing the size of the police department, moving money away from policing to something else, is that all of those things can actually be blocked by the unions if they want to. And part of our responsibility is to understand all of the mechanisms that we need to move so that we can get the change that we deserve. Now, Let's talk about Louisville. You know Louisville because that's where Breonna Taylor got killed by a no-knock raid in the middle of the night, plainclothes officers. Now, in Louisville, the police union contract literally says that no layoffs can happen at all during the duration of the contract. That is wild. There are a set of cities across the country that have similar protections where, like, even if you decrease the budget, it won't change the number of officers. So this is always a both and strategy. It is we fight at the legislative level. We are trying to change laws. We're trying to change policies. And we have to focus on police unions. Okay, what else? What else do I need to know? Uh, what do you know about qualified immunity or like what have you heard about qualified immunity? I just want to I want to I want to get it from you. Say it one more time. Qualified immunity. You could have literally just told me the formula for the pl- for plastic. <laughs> I have no idea what you just said. Okay. Um, what about the law enforcement officer bill of rights? Um, I, I don't understand it. What do you it? think about this um, idea that the officers have a waiting period before they disciplinary records are secret uh, or they get destroyed? What do you think about the wish list I don't of data that you would have around the issue of um, the part of abolition? What does that mean to you? You know, I, I got to say, like, as you talk about this stuff, it makes me, um, A, it makes me want to know more. It makes me a little upset. It makes me mad. I'm not going to lie. You know, it, it makes me want to dig in more. It makes me want to learn more, to be honest. It makes me want to figure out, you know, not only what can I do, but where can I send someone to learn for themselves so they can learn what they can do and how they can be a part of, you know, figuring all this out and, and how to change it. I have questions too. We all have questions. And I can tell you the first place I always go, or should I say the first person I always go to, is my partner Samuel Sinyangwe because he's immersed himself in this data for so long that he just knows it like the back of his hand. And I remember when we started Campaign Zero, that was like our first push. He was like, DeRay, I think we should have a database. The way that people even look at the data around this issue is off. And I was like, cool, let's do it. And whenever I start to feel like there are too many questions or when I start feeling overwhelmed or want to just know where's the data, I go to him because he centers our analysis and the work in numbers. Let me see if we can get him on the Zoom for for a second. Give me one second. Uh, Yeah, he's in the waiting room right now. One sec. All right, he's in. Hey, uh, Sam, can you hear us? Yep, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hey, Sam. Yeah, I can hear you too, man. Uh, Nice to meet you. You too. Look, Sam, so... All right. DeRay was just telling me about police unions and about their position at the center of the struggles for uh, increasing police accountability. And he says, you're the man. He says you are his go to for hard numbers. So can you just hit me with some knowledge here? Like, what should I know? What's the data? Surprise me. Just just shock me with something. So I think the first thing that people uh, should understand is just the scale of police violence in America. 
so, I mean, by now we've seen video after video after video of black folks being killed by the police. Over the past five years, we've been building the most comprehensive database of people killed by the police in the country. And one of the things that we found is uh, that every single day there are between three uh, or four people killed by the police. Uh, and that in a given year, it is... Wait, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Every single day? A day. Like every single day. Three to four day. people every day. Yes, every single day. And so that means every single year, there are about 1,100 people killed by the police. 1,100 every year. And that didn't start last year or this year or the year before that. That has been a fairly stable trend year after year after year. So it is just a wild scale of violence. And for every person killed by the police, uh, there are an estimated two people who are shot by police and survive. Uh, And there are another 50,000 people who are hospitalized by the police and survive. So the scale of this is just mind-boggling. And that doesn't even include all the people who witness police violence, who are traumatized by seeing uh, a family member or a friend impacted by this issue, seeing the videos on TV, on loop again and again and again. So I think you know, this is just an issue that has a massive, massive scale and impact on so many lives across the country. Um, and it's all the, all the reason why it's so important that we sort of deconstruct the contributing factors to those numbers uh, and bring those numbers down to zero, which is what Campaign Zero is all about. All right. So, Sam, we, we constantly are fed this narrative. We're constantly hearing this narrative of cities and urban centers being more dangerous for people to get shot by police, right? For more police violence. Is that true? Like, what does the data actually say? Does it support this? Up until now, we've seen the nationwide trends. And again, year over year over year, it looks like a fairly similar number of people are killed by the police, about 1,100. But when you dive deeper into the numbers over time, what you see is that the places in which people are being killed by the police, uh, the landscape of police violence is shifting over time. In urban areas, in big cities, uh, there's actually been a reduction in killings by the police since about 2013. There are about 30% fewer people being killed by police in big cities now as we're being killed by police in 2013. Uh, But the nationwide picture doesn't show that there have been substantial improvements because those reductions in the cities have been offset by an actual increase in people being killed by police in suburban areas and rural areas. Mm. And they're actually about as many people killed by police in the suburbs alone as are killed in both rural and urban areas combined. So it is a huge sort of hotspot of police violence all across the country in the suburbs uh, that often doesn't get as much sort of media attention, uh, but nevertheless impacts a huge number of people every single year. You know, when I think back to Ferguson and then bring that all all the way forward to today and also then hearing you go through these numbers, I mean, even though things may be shifting around, it feels like it's all kind of the same. Is there anything in your research that we should be hopeful about? So I think first and foremost, there are solutions, right? I think you know, it's been six years since the uprising in Ferguson and so the beginning of this nationwide conversation and uh, focus on police violence. Uh, and in that time, you know, it feels like nothing is changing, that nothing is getting better. 
that you know, we continue to see example after example of police violence. Uh, but what is also clear is that there are some places where things are getting better, where there are fewer people being shot by police, substantially fewer people uh, than were being shot by police just you know, three years, four years, or five years ago, and that there are places that have uh, made dramatic improvements to the accountability structures to hold officers accountable, that have taken on the issues of police union contracts, like in Austin, and even in, in, in some places are beginning to experiment with alternatives to the police and scaling those up. Like in Berkeley, they just passed legislation that is intended to remove the police from traffic enforcement. And there's really no reason for somebody with a gun to be pulling you over for speeding three miles over the speed limit or to be intervening when you had a car accident. And yet that's who gets sent to the scene most often. And we've seen case after case, you know, thinking about Philando Castile, for example, where the police have have killed people. And it's even in dispute whether they were even breaking the speed limit. Uh, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, about 30 million people a year receive what is called police-initiated contact, which is a, a research term meaning they were stopped by the police. And of those 30 million contacts or stops by the police, about 24 million of those are traffic stops. So there is a huge, huge opportunity to reduce police contact and reduce police violence by looking at the data, figuring out how these encounters start, what are the biggest sort of levers of change, and then implementing these types of policies that can just remove police from the equation. Sam, thank you. I knew you'd be the person to talk to, especially as we start to like talk more and more about what we do to fix the problem. Uh, you'd help us contextualize it. Yeah. Sam, thanks so much, man. Thanks a lot for stopping by. Absolutely. It's good talking with you. Jay, I have faith in you. I think that you're going to help us demystify these things that seem really complicated. And I know that the status quo is dependent on the system seeming too complicated for anybody to interact with. That, that like the only people who can understand unions are like activists who do this all day long, 24 hours a day. Da, da, da. Or, like the only people who can understand qualified immunity are like ACLU lawyers or the only people, you know, like the status quo benefits from everything feeling inaccessible. And like the truth is, is that all of these things are things that people can understand. Uh, we just have to figure out how to like help people understand them really well. So that's why I want you to follow your curiosity and like ask a million questions, find the academics or the, the researchers or the activists. And what I found is that like the way we ask questions and the way we sort of push leads us to learning the kernels of how we actually undo the damage. Sometimes the people with the least experience are the most imaginative. Like they are the people with like the sort of biggest questions and sort of the like, how dare this happen, right? Uh, and everybody in community should have answer to all of these questions because like we have all had the police bear down on our lives in really wild ways and like that is unacceptable. All right, I get it. I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it. This is a lot to take in, right? But DeRay is really good at spitting questions. And then my brain is making, I don't know, about 100 more. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to think of this podcast like a crash course. All right. It's all the information we need to know about why and how the police unions are at the heart of the conversation we're having right now as a nation. Because a crash course is kind of what we need. These contracts, these arbitrations, the police bill of rights, there are things we can do, not in a hundred years, but right now to change this. So what's the first thing you could do? Well, subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends. 
We're going to be releasing three more episodes, and we're going to tell you the stories of how change is being made already in cities like Austin and Portland, cities I've lived in and love. We're going to talk about things that are true, things that are not true, and how to keep the energy up so that this stuff improves before my daughter and your daughter or son. And if you don't have kids, your kids, futures, kids, 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 all the kids are old enough to host their own podcast. The Untold Story Policing is presented by Campaign Zero and Luminata Media. It's produced by Matthew Simonson and Ray Solomon. Supervising producer Jocelyn Frank. Music by Hannes Brown. Sound design and mixing by Matthew Simonson. Executive producers are DeRay McKesson, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and me. For more information about this, check out nixthesix.org. That's N-I-X-V-6 with the number six, dot org. I'm Jay Ellis. Thank you for listening, y'all. This podcast contains difficult content that may be triggering to some listeners. Please be advised. Man, take a seat back in the car, please. Take a seat back in your vehicle, please. The police officer came to her door and asked for her license. He said that she'd been speeding and he pulled her over for that reason. Put your feet back in the car so I can close the door. She asked him if they could just get on with it. Like, I'm trying to just go about my day and this shouldn't take longer than it needs to. But he took some serious offense. No, why are you killing me? Oh my God! Oh my God! And she's maybe a buck, a buck 20 at the most, and he's around 200 pounds. Anyone who saw that moment where he picked her up and threw her on the ground, audible gasps. This is the untold story. Policing. I'm Jay Ellis. It was... He was just so overpowering, and I don't know. I can't. I I don't know how to really explain. I don't. I can't think of a, a good analogy for it. All I saw was just a huge, oppressive force against uh, a tiny woman who just didn't know what to say or do with her body to make it stop. That makes my stomach turn and my mind race to all kinds of places. And if you're anything like me, you get upset when you hear stories like this one out of Austin, Texas, about Breon King, a young teacher who had this violent encounter with police in 2015. And then en route to her uh, being booked, and she's sitting in the back seat and she's handcuffed. And he says, it became glaringly obvious that nothing would come of it for this particular police officer. It's like you grieve for the inability to get justice for her. Stories like this are so pervasive, we know the ending before it even starts. And more often than not, the ending sucks, to be real. But today, we're going to hear a different story from Breonstown. A 
story about an activist group that fought to redefine policing in their community and won. In our last episode, I got my eyes open in a major way about this really, really, really important thing I barely even knew existed. Police union contracts. What they do that is unlike anything else in organized labor is that they create a set of protections around discipline and accountability that almost guarantees that officers can't be held accountable. Most of the things that we care about can be blocked by... I learned a lot from DeRay McKesson. You should check out episode one if you haven't already. (laughs) Uh, But he gently reminded me that knowledge is power if you use it. And the knowledge DeRay laid out made me want to do something. He suggested I call up Samson Yahweh, just like I did in episode one, because he always knows where to start. Start with the data. Analyze the data. Figure out uh, what the... He's a data scientist. And he specializes in weaving hard numbers, stats, specifics into this coherent fabric you can actually do something with. Those outcomes, uh, and then push for policies uh, that have worked and that have evidence of effectiveness uh, at addressing those core issues. And that's what Sam did for police union contracts. You know, the police union contract project, uh, we launched in 2015, originally focusing on 81 of the 100 largest cities. Those are the the cities that we could get access to their police union contracts. And so we requested all of these contracts from cities across the country and started to look through them. We talked with legal experts, and there are very few people across the country who actually like have a specialized focus in understanding police union contracts, but we found uh, those people. What I learned is that Sam and a small army of volunteers combed through each of these 81 contracts from all across the country. They flagged the things they found that make it nearly impossible to get justice for people brutalized by police the way Breonna King was. They organized that information and put it all out there on the Internet so that anyone, yes, even you faithful listener, could get a glimpse at the facts. What did he learn from all that number crunching? This is why the police union contracts matter so much. What cities were doing was negotiating away the ability to hold police officers accountable for misconduct and letting the police unions essentially write the rules for how officers can be investigated or disciplined, what happens to their records of misconduct. Today we're going back to Breon King City, a city of live music, barbecue, and according to Sam's data, a bad police union contract. I got to know a pair of amazing activists who use their understanding about police unions in the service of real change. You heard from one of them already. Suki McMahon was telling us that story at the top of the show. I come from a household where my father was a police officer, but he was an activist turned police officer. And I think I had a a role model because he raised us to be advocates for ourselves and for people who are Black. Suki is one of the directors at the Austin Justice Coalition. They're this all-hands-on-deck organization that is working on improving racial justice in a bunch of ways all at once. Chaz Moore founded the organization. Uh, And a lot of us were only at the rallies and the protests, which is fine. That's all a part of it. But, you know, with some people that didn't want to do that all the time, some people wanted to do the policy work and direct action um, that way. Yeah, we were very new very fresh and also just sponging up as much as we could about the landscape and the climate for change in Austin. You know, we kind of just 
carved our own space at the table and brought our own chairs. And, you know, here we are. Chaz and Suki told me that in 2015, they were doing a lot of drafting policy, a lot of presenting it to the Austin City Council. Apparently, they did good work, had some success getting new policy through. That empowered them, gave them a real taste for wielding influence. Then, in 2016, the violent arrest video of Breon King went public. Council voted today to settle Breon King's civil rights lawsuit. When video of the arrest in 2015 surfaced, it sparked national outrage, and we want to warn you, it is difficult to watch. KVU political report. Seeing it over and over and over, I get it. It really struck a nerve. Outside of just how angry we were, we were like, what the hell happened that this woman never saw justice? In fact, Breon King tried to file a complaint about a year later, and she was told that she missed the deadline for reporting misconduct. So her complaint was never heard, and that police officer was never punished for it. You know, you hear about this stuff again and again, but when it's going on in your own backyard, it makes you realize that you're a part of a system that lets it happen. It changed the way Chaz and Suki thought about their work. I mean, that blown deadline for making a complaint, for all their good intentions writing policy, there was still this giant loophole. If someone breaks that policy, what happens to them? And that was in the contract. The contract. Really just reading the policing contract and and having like a little bit of common sense is like, oh man, this is this is terrible. The police union contract. Look, I'll be honest, I didn't quite get it. Like, where are these police union contracts coming from? How come I've never heard of them before? And how the heck were they at the root of what's going on in Austin? Again, I'm learning just like you. And here's what I found out. Police officers in like a million individual cities and towns all across the country form unions. You know, like labor unions, hotel workers, transportation workers. The police officers organize together as one unit, giving them way more leverage when they negotiate their contract to work for the city. Those negotiations with the city happen about twice a decade. And the negotiations are almost always done in secret behind closed doors. And that, so I'm told, is the police union contract. To me, going over a contract is kind of a chore. It's uh, a lot of dry reading. No offense to the attorneys out there. But Chaz and Suki, they saw it differently. It was a goldmine for reform that no one had been looking at. Didn't even occur to people that they could have any kind of movement in that space. Look, I've heard activists, friends talk about wanting to set rules for police to follow. They can come up with as many rules as they want, but the police union contract controls what happens after those rules are broken. So you really have to do your homework, read the contract cover to cover, or you'll miss the actual problem. And then once you figured out just what that problem is, it's still going to be an uphill battle to fix it because the police have major clout. Like if, if you would have told them or you would have asked them to take a word out, um, they would have like lost their mind because they were just so used to not having to listen to anybody. Right. Like the community or, the, you know, city council, like people normally tell the police. Yes. And then if that's not enough, the only real window for changing a contract is when it comes up for renewal just once every few years, because, you know, it's a contract. Once it's signed, you've got to do what it says until it expires. 
It seems like changing those contracts is kind of like the Olympics. It takes a ton of preparation. You face stiff competition and you have to take your opportunity when the time comes. So let's jump to 2017 when Chaz and Suki's opportunity was fast approaching in Austin. Hey, producers, can we get a a little beat here so we can keep the energy up through all this policy stuff? Oh, yeah. There we go. Okay. The Austin activists identified eight parts of the current police union contract. Eight ways that the contract weighted the scales of justice heavily in the favor of the police. One, one, 180 day deadline to file a complaint. That was problematic because of the Breon King incident where the police chief wasn't made aware of this until a whole year later. Two, two, two. Automatic discipline reductions. Suspensions were reduced to written reprimands, and that meant that they would be moved into a confidential file and not publicly available. Three, three. civilian oversight boards couldn't file complaints against officers. Somebody may not feel safe even going online. We thought it would be imperative for the oversight office to be able to file a complaint on behalf of people that come to her. Four, Four. permanently sealed records. The written reprimands would go into a confidential vault, and we were just trying to crack that open. Five, civilian oversight boards had no power to call witnesses. If we're talking about true oversight, we think that these people should be able to subpoena witnesses, officers, anybody. Six, 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 in-person complaints only. They had to go in, show their license, sign an affidavit, all of these steps that made it complicated and intimidating. Seven, Seven. Seven. civilian oversight boards were kept out of the room when police questioned witnesses. We thought it was important for the oversight person to be in that room and to be able to read the cues and hear the voice and also let the witness know that, you know, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm on your side. Promotion of officers regardless of misconduct. This may be one of the only jobs in the world where, you know, you can work a job and you can continually mess up and do all the bad things and then still get promoted, right? We felt like those should be taken into account. Eight things, eight powerful features that the Austin activists wanted to take out of the contract their city signed with the police union. Eight things that could start to level the playing field of police accountability. Chaz and Suki were determined to be in that negotiating room when their city's police union contract was up for discussion. Their mission? To bear witness to the process, keep track of proposed changes to the contract, and report those changes to the wider community. Bear witness, take notes, report out. They wanted to shine some sunlight on the process. And their goal was to disrupt a contract renewal process that, for many years, had been on autopilot. But just getting into that room was the first challenge. The fact that these meetings were from like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., like during the week, um, is probably intentional, right? People are at work, you have jobs, you're a parent. You can't, you can't come to these meetings. And I've heard that a lot of the time, the details around these negotiations are under wraps. People don't even know when or where or even that they're happening. Luckily for us, Austin is kind of special because negotiators there had to open the room to the public. But they didn't have to be happy about it. It was just a constant stream daily of insults on their part uh, about why we are even in that space and what we could possibly contribute to this discussion. 
But the activists ignored their insults. They kept showing up with their laptops, bearing witness, taking notes, reporting out. You know, typing like they're running out of time. But in order for us to get the word out, we had to like, we, we had to take those notes. We had to let people know what was going on. And we had to be able to bring that room, bring those negotiations to the community to let them know. And, and once we were able to do that, people was like, oh, this is absurd. For close to a year, the spring through the winter of 2017, whenever the police association met with city reps, maybe a couple times a month, sometimes more, the activists were there too, bearing witness, taking notes, reporting out. I remember we went in there and we were listening to the requests that the um, APA, the Austin Police Association, was making, and we were all puzzled. It reminds me of when my eight-year-old asks me for Christmas presents and he asks for the galaxy and, you know, unicorns. I'm like, none of this makes sense. But the activists couldn't speak up. They weren't allowed to. Yeah, I mean, again, because, you know, we're not the ones. I mean, it is a contract, right? So it's a contract between the city and the police association. So, you know, we, we we couldn't say anything. All they could do was ignore the insults, bear witness, take notes, report out. It changed the dynamic of the discussions. The city negotiator told us that he felt that they were actually having a conversation for the first time in a in one of these negotiations. Like there was actually a back and forth happening. It wasn't just getting bulldozed by the police association. So we do know that our presence just in general changed what they said and how they said it. Now, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought Anything could make the ins and outs of contract negotiations popular with regular folks. But that was Chaz and Suki's plan. They reported what they saw in that room. And for the first time, people learned just what they stood to lose, what they had already lost. People got worked up about it. When I heard about this, I was like, wow, now that is a really smart strategy to solve a complicated, like multi-layered problem. These guys really know what they're doing. I mean, if you think about it, those negotiations were kind of a sham. The police always got what they wanted, and the city council always approved it. The dynamic is usually just give them what they want and rubber stamp it and go about our business for another three to five years. So, how do you throw a wrench in the middle of a machine like this? You got to find the access point. And our friends in Austin calculated their access point was the city council. See, the police union doesn't answer to the community, right? But the city council does. And while the city council isn't in that negotiation room, anything that comes out of it needs their approval. See how brilliant that is? Get the city council to reject that contract coming out of those sham negotiations. That'll force the police union back to the negotiating table under different circumstances. There, they'll have to hammer out a deal with the community. So... Working backwards to capture the city council's attention, first, they had to capture public attention. They listened, took notes, and reported out to the community. And they made sure the city council knew that the public was invested. But they also had to prove that the police union's demands were not okay. For that, they needed our friend Sam's help. So we were able to take the data from Sam and DeRay and show that we were just a handful, one among a handful of other cities that failed. 
And I think that elevating this conversation to that national level was really instrumental because we were able to say, eyes are laser focused on us right now in this moment. What is your decision? How are you going to to manage this moment and be remembered in this moment? The idea was to force the city council to ask themselves these questions, too, because all of this information gathering was leading up to one crucial moment. The city council vote on whether to renew the police union contract. What happened? Well, that's after our break. All right, let's go ahead and get started. This uh, special called meeting is for the proposed uh, meet and confer agreement between the city of Austin and the Austin Police Association. You know, it's funny. In Hollywood, the world I come from as an actor and storyteller, the most dramatic scenes play out in the streets, maybe in the courtroom, and definitely in the bedroom. (laughs) But in real life, if you're paying attention, a lot of the real action... That stuff gets decided at city council uh, meetings. uh, Give the the council the chance to ask questions uh, at that point if they want to. Now stay with me here. It might not sound like it, but it's about to get real. It's December 2017. Members of the Austin City Council are getting ready to vote on whether to renew the police union contract proposed by the negotiators. There are 10 council members and the mayor gets a vote too. So 11 votes are in play. They'll need at least six. Uh, And then we'll go to public testimony. Over and over and over, representatives from the police express concerns that the force will quit and that Austin will descend into chaos. Sergeant's leaving immediately and it will create a serious brain I'm sadly disappointed and disgusted by the lack of support. Police officers killed in the state at a very rapid pace. I hold myself accountable. I can't do that if I can't make it instead of away from it like you currently do. Earlier than they would have, it would be... But thanks to months and months of bearing witness taking notes, and reporting out, Chaz and Suki managed to drum up even more community interest. A lot Instead, this of is an opportunity to actually redefine community safety in a comprehensive where and your priorities way. lie. And if it doesn't lie within making sure the voices that have come before you today we got their backs and we're committed to long-term change. Hundreds of people show up for this vote, and nearly everyone is waiting for a turn at the mic. It's been thrown around today that pro-equitable reform means anti-cop. I wonder if they're accounting for the inevitable millions this city will spend in police brutality lawsuits over the course uh, of the next contract. Literally, like the council chambers is full. We have people sitting outside. We have people sitting um, like in the foyer. People just testifying for hours about why this contract could not pass. Sam and DeRay even make an appearance to throw their support behind their Austin friends. You have an opportunity to be a leader in this space of standing up for police accountability and transparency and demanding something better. Demanding that Austin lead, not only in terms of accountability. And, you know, of course, Sam is nerding it up with his PowerPoints and he'd obviously really sunk his teeth into what the dynamics here in Austin were. If the priority is safety, the research literature is quite clear that the best approach to achieving that is not investing more in police. Just having them present, it, it meant that Austin was a part of 
a grander, bigger movement-making moment. I think a petition that has over 600 signatures. I think the fact that even tonight we had about 240 people against this contract and only 50-something for. I think the community has spoken. I was the last speaker that night. At like hour number eight, like right between like hour eight and the ninth or tenth hour, whatever. I need all the community members if you sit down to stand up so they can actually see who's here talking about this. I like Austin because I still didn't quite know how this vote was gonna go. Right? I knew. Well, I knew we had five, but I was praying we had six. This community, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I guarantee you. This community will stand with you if you stand with us. Let's stand up to, to, to accountability. Let's stand up to a lack of transparency. Let's stand up together for once for something in this city. We will stand with you. We will stand with you. I promise you. That's all I have to say. Thank you. And it sounded for a moment that city council was going to, like, postpone this thing again. I was like, no, 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 no. Like, we're not, we're not going to do that, right? Like, we've been here nine hours. We've been here just as long as you. Like, I'm just, like, losing it. All right, let's go ahead. We are now back up to the It's dais. nearly midnight, and then... Any further discussion before we take a vote? Finally. Those in favor of the motion to, um, uh, 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 to, to continue negotiations, send back for negotiations, please raise your hand. Those opposed, it is unanimous on the dais. <laughs> They all vote against renewing the existing police union contract. And everybody hands, like, everybody hands go up. Um, like, all 11, you know, 10 city council and the mayor. The time is 20 minutes before midnight. We've done our business. This meeting is adjourned. Still to this day, there's no way you could have told me we would have had 11 votes. Because we were, like, fighting and, like, you know, convincing the six that we had and we celebrated that night, but it was also like, now the work is going to begin. And guess what? That night, chaos does not descend onto the streets of Austin. The number of police officers who retired or who left or nothing out of the norm, and the sky didn't fall. I guess, you know, there's a little bit of Hollywood in this story after all. You know, it's your classic David and Goliath encounter playing out in the halls of city government. And I'd like to end this story right here in a scene of celebration and revelry. But it's really not the end of the story. The story continues when the union comes back to the table to renegotiate. After that night, real negotiations could begin. And the negotiating room looked pretty different after that vote. For one, there were a lot more people from the community and they weren't on the periphery anymore. It was much easier because they started respecting our opinions because we were, uh, we had proven to them that we were capable of adults, of, of like reading a contract just like them and using our own logic to say, no, that's bullshit and we can't let that fly. And by the following November, the city council held another vote, this time to approve a new dramatically reworked contract rounded out with months of community input and real compromise. Chaz and Suki started this journey with eight things in the contract that they wanted to change. And in the end, I would say we got like seven and a half. They didn't do half bad. 
It was a it was a moment for us. We were very unexpected. No one imagined that this group of young black folks would come in and take a seat like the way that we did. In Austin, they sort of wrote this playbook and totally nailed it. So I asked Sam, where's this playbook going next? Portland uh, is one of, of a handful of places that has been working on the police union contract issue for quite some time now. You know, Portland has one of the largest racial disparities uh, in arrests uh, and policing in the country. Uh, it, ha- it also has uh, a huge, huge issue with police uh, arresting and using force against uh, people who are homeless. Sam and the activists in Portland have their work cut out for him. But he's looked at the data. He's seen the results. And it looks like for now, the most effective thing is to take this one city's contract at a time. These contracts are negotiated locally. And so a local strategy, a city-by-city strategy, one that accounts for the differences between cities, the differences between the contracts that each city has, all of those things come into play, and they're different depending on where you are. And it may not be sort of sexy. It may not be the most exciting thing, but this is actually, these are documents that, that structure whether or not a police officer will be held accountable in your city. Um, whether or not a police officer who has shot somebody will get their job back. Um, All of these things are critical, so it has to be a part of the strategy. And I think part of this is helping to demystify what to push for in those rooms or what to demand um, when in a city council meeting uh, and providing sort of the data and the research that can help inform those decisions. But in typical Sam fashion, he's already joyfully diving into Portland's municipal nitty-gritty. We actually did a session in front of the city council as well as the mayor and the police chief uh, providing an overview of these issues, doing a presentation to ground uh, what some of those issues in the contract are and why they they matter. I'm realizing all of this could be a story in my own city or in your city. We can make changes in the police union contracts. As a start, we can find out when they expire. That sets a timeline for actions needed. If you live in Portland, now is the time to get training for your contract Olympics. If you live in Chicago or San Jose, now is your time too. If you live in Louisville or Baton Rouge, if you live in Dallas or Houston or countless other cities where contracts are coming up for renegotiation, now is your moment. Now is your time to join with others in your city to do this work. Now is also the time to visit JoinCampaignZero.org to learn all about the details of your city's contract. And that means information on how to go about changing it. And take it from a Hollywood guy, that's definitely a lot better ending than any of us could come up with here. Next time on The Untold Story, I'm going to try and dive a little deeper into some of my own misconceptions about policing. There are buzzy phrases and probably straight up myths that I've heard and then there are truths we're going to figure out which is which and you won't want to miss that so if you haven't already go ahead and subscribe to this show and tell your friends to do that too because these stories are important for everybody to hear The Untold Story Policing is presented by Campaign Zero and Lemonada Media it's produced by Matthew Simonson and Ray Solomon supervising producer Jocelyn Frank Music by Hannes Brown. Sound design and mixing by Matthew Simonson. Executive producers are DeRay McKesson, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and me, 
For more information about this, check out nixthesix.org. N-I-X-V-6 with the number six dot org. I'm Jay Ellis, and thank you for listening, y'all. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people.